What's going on? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Shelton. Today I'm talking with Reed Gennar. He's a uh, pretty acclaimed musician. He's traveled, he's been up, toured all 48 states. He's got over 10 records, but he's also a CMO. He's been a CMO of several companies, Magisto, Smule. And we get into the power of collaboration, both within marketing teams and also enabling your users to collaborate and how important that is you know, to a product success. So it's a really, really fun conversation. We talked for quite a while, actually. I hope you guys enjoy this one. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Cave Social. Cave Social is a marketing agency based out of Los Angeles that helps businesses grow and manage their social media. If you need help with your social media, head over to cavesocial.com and contact them. Contact them. I mean, I'm the owner of the agency. I'm What's the cat's out of the bag? Bags out of, I don't know what they're saying. You know they're saying. Uh, go check them out, though. Anyways, enjoy this episode, guys. What's going on, my marketing people? Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Marketing Podcast. Today, I'm excited. I am sitting with really someone who has mastered two crafts. Or is, you know, continually seeking mastery in both crafts, so one, one being marketing, the other being music. I'm sitting with Reed Gennar. He's been a CMO. He's worked with companies like Magisto, Smool. And on the music side, he's toured in 48 states. He's open for The Who, The Grateful Dead, Dave Matthews, a, a list. I'm excited to have you here, man. How you doing? Thank you. I'm, I'm great, actually, all things considered. Uh, yeah, I feel you on that. I feel good. So thanks for asking. No, that's good. I want to hear right off the bat, man. Tell me, okay, music, obviously, we spoke before the show, you know, you said in the 90s, music was really the calling. Talk to me a little bit about that experience and more in particular, the lessons that you took and that you continue to take from being a musician that you've applied over, you know, into your marketing career. Sure. I feel about it. Well, I guess there's a, a couple data points that I can give you about how I feel about it. One is that it feels like it's part of me. I made a record recently during this lockdown, and my dad was kind of questioning why. Like, my response was, you know, why do lemmings jump off cliffs and why do caribou migrate? It's just what I do. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so that's one. And I felt that way for as long as I can remember since I came online. And what I've also realized over time is that being a musician is actually a nested expression of or manifestation of who I am in a, in a broader sense. And that is to say, it's less about, I never really was drawn to being a celebrity. It's about the interaction. It's about the creative process. And I almost see it as a social service, right? You, I get a lot out of lifting people's moods and sharing my personal stories through art, you know, and that's the role of art is to, it's like horizontal spiritualism. So I find that in entrepreneurship. So that's a hundred thousand feet. And then there are so many transferable lessons and skill sets that I could probably just babble endlessly. Are there any in particular that you'd like me to address? You know what? I think you said something really interesting in there when you were asked why, and you, you said it's because it's a part of you. And I think a lot of marketers and creatives have a hard time identifying them, truly taking on the identity of like, I am a creator. I do create art. I do create, or I create, you know, content. I'm creating 
um, you know, designers and I'm, I'm actually doing things. I have I personally, I'll have a lot of insecurity about my designs. I'll be like, oh, I'm not a designer. I'm not a designer. Meanwhile, we're punching out design projects for clients. Talk to me about taking on that, I guess, that identity as the as being a creative. And then now in a leadership position, you know, how have you taken that and tried to help others, you know, really instill the creativity in them. Because obviously if you're there, you know, and you're starting to believe it through music and you take it in marketing and it's just who you are and what you do. If you've got a team of marketers underneath you, is there anything you've done communication wise, leadership style wise to really help the people underneath you identify as creators and really believe in their own creative ability? Yeah. I think my answer to that is paradoxical in that, and I'll answer the first, the direct part first. If I think about embracing myself as a creator, that took a long time. But I think the heroic jump is going out and performing publicly. And it takes a huge amount of courage because you're just ripe for criticism and an object of criticism by definition. I mean, even the first time you play, right? let alone if you have any popularity. And then it's an incredible um, act of, you make yourself incredibly vulnerable. And that's both intimidating and rewarding. So it's intimidating because there aren't many places in your life. And I think even in interpersonal relationships where it's hard to calibrate how vulnerable to be. In music, it's like the more vulnerable you are, the better you are. I think it's why guys like Bob Marley are so universally loved is they let it all hang out, you know? And so that is a hard thing to learn how to do and feel comfortable doing in front of people. And it's an amazing transferable skill because if you can do that, you know, in front of 200 people or 2000 people or 10,000 people, you can certainly do it in front of a team at a company or in a marketing boardroom. And and that's helped me a lot. I think there's an element there that's less about being a creative and more just being confident in putting something out there. I'm sure everybody feels this way, but as you're about to press post on LinkedIn or Facebook, there's this moment of insecurity. I actually had my wife check a post recently just to make sure sanity check because I, <laughs> I felt like buyer's remorse, like maybe I shouldn't have posted that. So I think living with that discomfort and learning to trust your own internal reference points is a really powerful lesson, especially in regards to that feeling of vulnerability. So that's that's one. It's so important. I think obviously playing a song in front of a crowd is, you know, a big level and a big step to do. It takes a lot of courage. But I talk with marketers and people starting their own business, to your point, even pressing post sometimes or hitting publish on that blog post where they're truly talking about an experience or something that went wrong and, you know, something that went completely sideways with business and having to talk about the learnings from that and go out onto the internet and say, hey, I'm not perfect or our company's not perfect, but I learned from this. Um, or here's my stance on something. It does take courage. And I, I think uh, to your point, it's like getting one, identifying as the creator, but then two, getting that confidence to be like, okay, I can hit publish. Like I can, what I'm putting out is adding value. It is really an interesting mindset shift though that, that takes place. I'm with you on that 100%. I think you hit on something that's really important too. Whether you're publicly you know, admitting your flaws or not, it's learning how to take those punches and evaluating, again, using your own reference points to assess whether they're accurate or not. It's like product market fit. And there are times when criticism 
I feel, whether it's of my creative work or my entrepreneurial work, that it's unfair and unfounded. And there are times when I think it's accurate and learning to hear that is also a really powerful lesson. So I'm working on a record right now. Again, it's like each time you do it, every time you go around the sun, you learn some, you're at back at the same place, but you learn something new. And I, I, I feel this time I've really given myself to that criticism and just sort of said, what do you think? You know, is that performance lacking? Is that part bad? And it's been really sort of liberating to be able to assess it with a greater sense of objectivity. And that, I think that's what you're talking about. And then we talk about the mantra of failing fast. You're gonna fail. Like you gotta write, you know, I've written a hundred songs and probably 30% of them are dogs. 30% are, you know, B sides and 30% are good. Right. And that's kind of, those are good odds. Yeah. Noah Kagan, the uh, founder of Sumo and he was a you know, employee 30 at Facebook and employ Fort Mint and all these things. He put out a post the other day. I'm going to see if I can pull it up. He says, Red Hot Chili Peppers have written 265 songs. 13 have been top singles. You know, Beyonce, 89, 22. Drake has 133 songs. Only 38 are top singles. And it means that over 70% of their output isn't popular, right? And, yeah. and it's like, it, it, when you look at the Red Hot Chili Peppers, you know, 4.9% of their music is what ends up hitting the charts. To just take that of like, oh, okay, not everything is going to be a home run and that's okay. And then to, to your point, learn and really, really learn from what you put out there by asking people that you trust. There's a big difference in people from when we go out with a marketing campaign, a piece of content, and we're asking someone, hey, what do you think? And we're really looking for a compliment opposed to truly asking another creative you respect or someone within the department. And saying, hey, where does this need to be beefed up? What does this actually look like? Is this good? To your point, was this performance? Was there something I could have done? Because that feedback, it's criticism and it's critical. It's critical to growth is to actually get that useful feedback that makes your next song, your next blog post, your next video campaign. Your next feature. Better. Yeah. Product feature. Yeah. Exactly. Because if we're going through just looking for compliments on how good our product is or how good our website is, we're not actually going to get the honest feedback that we need. That being said, everyone who's listening, 10, 15% of the internet is batshit crazy. So if somebody just is hating for the sake of it, you don't need to respond or deal. <laughs> don't take Gosh, I'd say more like 50%, right? <laughs> um, the paradoxical side of this thing, though, is that there's a place for being uh, creative and there's a place for parking it. So when I look at like the transferable skills, yeah, here's a soft one is that I know how, or at least I, I hope I do, how to interact with creatives. And to some degree, technologists and product managers fall into that degree because they're more creatives than not, right? A lot of times it's like, I really don't want to care about or hear about go-to-market planning and marketing and advertising and pricing. I just want to build something cool. And I respect that, right? Because that's what I got. It's the sociological part of it and the creative part of it. And I respect that. But at the same time, if you're paid, let's say you are, in fact, a gifted artist, but you're paid to be a graphic designer doing direct response marketing collateral, you got to park the artist, right? And be pragmatic. That's where I think the notion of compromise and, and collaboration are really interesting, right? Because as an example, what I found is a lot of times you can find a solution that sort of that's better 
and bigger than the sum of the parts by engaging in a conversation that's honest, right? Which is, hey, listen, man, I love the black font on black for the uh, trade show brochure. It's beautiful. But unless you have a black light, you can't read it. So what is it that you were trying to accomplish with it? elegance, let's say? Can we maintain that that elegance and that sort of eye-popping design, the mystique, and still have it be legible? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, as opposed to me who would be like, just make my logo bigger. J- jazz it up. We all love the <laughs> clients. Like, jazz it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with you. It's taking, especially when you look at the management side, right? And working with creatives and saying, okay, we say think outside the box, think outside the box, but eventually we do have to put the crew, you know, there has to be a box, but I'm not saying, hey, you can paint this box whatever color you want, right? And I want to get to the original idea that that creative had, but then to your point, okay, what were you going for? What message were you trying to get across? And is there a slight tweak or something we can do that, you know, will help the customer, the user, the consumer really internalize what you were trying to say, you know, just a little better. And that's where I think, you know, to segue, I wanted to talk about the power of collaboration because I want to talk about it on two fronts with you. One, the power of collaboration from a user standpoint, specifically, you know, we talked pre-show about with Smool and the magic of two people coming together to, I guess first we'll talk about Smool is an app where you can come on and you sing with other folks. But really what you said to me was like, it's not really about singing, it's about collaboration. So enabling your users to collaborate and speak to each other. And then two, collaborating with people on your team and working in that sense. Yeah, um, I, I want to talk about yeah both of those and really looking at enabling users to collaborate and the power that that brings. It could be anything from two controllers on a Nintendo Wii going through the doing your mission sure. as a video game. Sure. And then through to products like Smool and other products, Talk to me about, you know, how you've seen that manifest in your work and especially through a lot of the video programs that you've worked on. Sure. I'll start with a TED Talk umbrella, which is to say I've been reading a lot about collaboration because it, it interests me, particularly having witnessed the dynamic at Smeal, which I'll explain. And it turns out that when we talk about evolution, we focus mainly on biology and culture and psychology and sociology are you know, integral. They're just inexplicably linked. Collaboration is as big or bigger a force in our evolution than competition because, you know, somebody who understood that, hey, listen, I can kill a rabbit and have that much protein or work with these three other guys and kill a deer and have way more protein and work less. Well, he was more likely to survive. And so if you apply that logic to the workplace, And then the way we scale collaboration is by building cultures that reward it. And it's how like an organism, like a business or a band succeeds by rewarding uh, playing nicely with each other. So that's part of who we are as creatures. And in terms of Smeal, what's so really, really amazing is it is karaoke, but it's, it's social singing, really. And it's more social media than karaoke app. So you come in, you record a part of a song, we call it an open rack or invite, and then people can join it. And each time they join it, it's a new instance. It's like save as, right? Be like if you sent a Google Doc to a bunch of people and asked them all to save a different version of it. You get different levels of uh, success. But when somebody joins a song that you sang on and you sang together and you like it, it is, even if you don't like it, it's such an intimate thing. 
It's somewhere, compare it to liking what somebody had for lunch. You've actually sang with them. And being a musician, like, it is really intimate, like too intimate. I never want to know, you know, a set of dudes as well as I do the guys in my band. Because you've got, you know, almost like sexuality, you've got this other mode of interacting. And so the users on Smule find deep social connection. And sure, they get hits of dopamine, but really what they're incredibly vulnerable. It's incredibly positive culture because it is like dating. You want to find people you like singing with. And if you're a jerk, nobody's going to want to sing with you. So it creates a culture of positivity. And then People align around the most fascinating psychological vectors. So there are stay-at-home moms who, or parents, this group happens to be moms, who sing together as a way of having adult companionship. But they're singing with people across the globe. There that, are That's so powerful. It's so that's, cool. That's so cool because, too, when people can come through from, like you said, all across the globe and work together for a common well, one, when you can work together for a common cause, those intimate bonds, so like writing, you know, going with the band and performing. I played college football and my football team and the guys I played with from all walks of life would come together on Saturday to try to win a game, right? And those bonds become so tight afterwards, even though it wasn't really about throwing a football at the end of the day. And to your point, with they come in and the social singing, I think, right, when you tell me that, like I go to a karaoke bar and I sing Sweet Caroline or something, and the whole bar is singing along with you. And I, I can't hold the tune to save my life. But it doesn't matter because everyone is joined in and is helping. And it is, obviously, it's a very sloppy sense of collaboration when I'm up there <laughs> I got a bar. But uh, it, to have that perfected and work towards and, and for people to be able to do from their own home. And to do with other people across the world, I think that's something that's just it's deep. I, it's it's yeah, I can't I can't express how special that is, you know. And those connections are what online can lead to, and like you're saying that this level of connection, like this companion, friend, deep connection that you can have with human beings, is it really it, it comes down to our DNA at the start when you said music is something that you do. I think as humans, collaborating is something we're, we're meant to do, right? We don't even realize sometimes when we're in those situations and you're collaborating and you're making something. It's just like this this high you get almost, you know, when you're working with people like that. So it's absolutely fascinating. It is. And it's like, I think it's the tip of the iceberg in terms of where the digital world is going, which is, I think technology in general has been used to deliver efficiency, more units of X. So whether it's fire delivering units of DNA, right, more people or social media delivering more friends, it's not necessarily deeper qualitative experiences, right? And there's a whole argument in terms of human evolution that we live qualitatively far less rich lives than our ancestors because the metric of success was just quantity. So what I see happening online is the metric of success being quality. In a way, there's a forcing function, which is that there's just so much information and so many connections that the only way you matter, like collaboration is almost a form of listening. I'm sure other people use it. I love saying engagement is the new awareness. You can't buy awareness anymore. You have to win it by winning somebody's attention, maintaining it, by winning their respect. I will go into collaboration with teams, but I think there's something really interesting there about individuals collaborating, whether it's around music or art or 
I mean, you see it certainly in, in work with Slack and Google Docs and other collaborative tools. But there's also this notion of how can businesses use the notion of collaboration as a way of engaging people? So it starts for me with creating content that people actually care about and not being tone deaf. And that's going to take a while. It's nuts to me. I talk to entrepreneurs in the Valley and beyond marketers who just are really tied to Don Draper and Mad Men and just don't get it. They just don't get it. It's like, yeah, I want to um, put my product in this. And it's like, well, you can, and you certainly can ask for a sale at some point, but people are expecting you to behave. If this is the way I think about it is if my friends, every one of them can create content every day that I care about, why can't the businesses that want to win my dollars? And this comes down to you have brands and specifically the people behind the brands, right? At executive levels and startup founders, for instance, we see things like a couple Steve Jobs movies come out and around the time of you know his passing or after the time of his passing, but he became so high profile and everyone's, you know, this is the way you build a company. But it also happens that Steve Jobs was an asshole. So then everybody thinks they need to do the same thing to grow their company and have zero empathy. And that's how you treat people. And it's just one, if that's not you, like you shouldn't be trying to play some character you're not. And I think the same thing happens in advertising where watch a little too much Don Draper and start to think that like, this is how it has to be every single time instead of really being in touch with what's happening. I'll say an example for, for you today, right? So for those of you, when you guys listen to this, we are recording this on Tuesday, June 2nd. It is Blackout Tuesday is the hashtag and showing in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement all on Instagram. So everyone is posting black screens. There are companies right now that are running their ads and posting content and it's showing up in the feed as, hey, check out our summer sale amidst this massive social movement online. It's just completely tone deaf. One of my friends runs a, an agency and she got let go by the client today because she recommended they shut off ad spend for today and they said well that's going to stop our sales and she's like yeah it's also going to show that your brand isn't out to lunch and completely tone deaf so i think there's a lot that still has to happen with people being plugged into what's actually happening and to your point if a 17 year old on tiktok can go and figure out how to edit videos and make something that's entertaining or inspires me or informs me or you know makes me take action, then you're damn right. I expect, you know, a fully funded startup or a fortune 500 to do the same thing. <laughs> so I think brands, I think we're going to see that that shift as brands start to humanize. And I think we're already seeing it where leaders of brands come out and are using their personality in a spokesperson type way on social, but I'm right there with you. I think it's an absolute must for some of these brands to start to become human and then to create content that is worth digesting. And I would ask you, if you were given, insert a Fortune 500, right? What are those steps that you think you can do that would help enable that creative team to you know, do that? Because these companies have beautiful, they have really, really great creatives on staff. But I feel like a lot of times the structures of that company and those companies can really halt anything from getting out the door. Is there anything that you'd recommend? Like, okay, if you were to come in in that first month, six months, what have you to really instill that, you know, creative liberty, so to speak. Yeah. I think part of it is process and like understanding that it's an evolving narrative. Like think about television commercials that sort of where they had such penetration that they could tell a narrative 
they'd run a certain, let's say it was a three-part series. They'd run them, you know, one for one month and so forth. And if you think about any creative, you know, but particularly via video creative, and you think about it as an evolving narrative, then it gives you some liberty, right? So the way I think about it is sort of like this, that it's part of the user experience. It's not just the head of the funnel. It is actually part of the product and media these days, right? So I tend to think about it like it's, it, I wrote some thought leadership piece that was a little, you know, I was trying to be clever. And I said the four, I reinvented the four P's. I just made air quotes in case you were wondering. But so the first one is passion and it's tell your story, like tell people what you're passionate about as a company, because your customers by definition are passionate about the same thing. So that's one. And telling that brand narrative, it's, it, it's more than a brand narrative. It's like being vulnerable about who you are as a company is really powerful as a starting point. And then prove it, right? Or actually then personify it, right? So how do you tell those stories in a way that is human? Because I don't want to talk to BMW. I don't do that on social media. I don't talk to amorphous monolithic organizations, I talk to people. So they're really inventive ways companies have done that. I, Lowe's strikes me as one where, you know, they have these little fix-it tips. So how to fix your floor, wood floor with a walnut. Because they can't go on Instagram and just show pictures of <laughs> stuff on shelves. <laughs> it's not interesting, right? So there's an inventive way of personifying it. I mean, it's a little more gimmicky and a little more like a little less authentic, but customer testimonials, right? It's then it's your customers talking on your behalf. I think there's something really interesting about providing tools for your customers to, you know, as part of your product to speak on your behalf. The greatest digital products do that, right? I mean, Twitter, Facebook, and most of the companies I worked for have done that. With Magisto, you make a movie, you share it, and that is breadcrumb back to the product. So personifying and then proving it. So proving it is like there's a bunch of different ways you can do it, whether it's a case study, which is, again, a very or on the spectrum of things, a, a more calculated example to the way you treat your customers and customer care to the types of products that you introduce, like prove that you're passionate about this right? You know, you don't have to be blindly altruistic, but sometimes you got to give without asking. And then, so once you've, you know, established shared passion, personified that message, proven that you live, you eat your own dog food, then ask me for a sale, right? Instead of just buy, 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 buy. You're 100% right. And that's exactly it is if you can go out and give, 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 and then ask, we're as consumers, much more receptive to that language. It's also the law of reciprocity is, is a real thing. There's a reason when you go to buy a car, they give you a coffee right away and some chips or whatever. That stuff helps. And I ultimately, I think it's like, it's the right thing to do, right? Is not just be, one, it's more fun from a creative standpoint. The last thing you want to do is just being like shouting through a microphone, hey, buy my product. Um, whether that's in person or on social or use this product, it's so great. Here are my feature list, one, two, three, four, five. Instead, it's, hey, here's how this product can help you. I'm going to actually show you how, even without this product, how you can solve your problem. You know, our product might help you down the road, but I'm going to show you how to do that. There's, you know, an example at like a really brick and mortar level it comes to me. I think about things like if you're a plumber, you're not going to be posting and telling your stories about dirty toilets, right? It's 
you're going to talk about here's how you can fix things. There's these guys out of Los Angeles, these guys, these two plumbers, these, these twins, and they go and they make videos of them, these how to's like you're saying, and they've exploded online. They've redone people's bathrooms for free. And like people who, you know, have trouble with disabilities, like walking and made it more like friendly for them. And they've just found such a great way to, um, <laughs> it is honestly, and it's all filmed on like a horrible Blackberry. Like it's like, it's, but I get sucked into the content every time. And it's just, it, it's so awesome. Right. And it's like, what is it? I'm, I'm curious. They're called the twin home experts. But no, um, no. What is it about the content that sucks you in? The fact that it's human, man. And it's, authentic. It, it, it's real. And they're really Vulnerable. helping people. Yeah. They're going, hey, this person here got injured, has been out of work and is, can't go to the bathroom properly. We're going to remake her toilet for her and re get and redo the bathroom. So this person can do this. And it's something that myself, it's like going to the bathroom. I just do it. Like, you know, it's, I don't think twice. And for this person, it was a monumental task. And to me, it was like the most beautiful base level of awesome marketing. It came from the right place. It truly helped the person with a problem. And I say that as the example, because it's probably the least glamorous thing to promote in the world, the toilet. Yeah. And they're able to go through and tell a story. So I think if they can do that, why can't other brands, online products, whether you're a brick and mortar service, whatever it may be, is like tapping into that deeper emotional thing and truly giving without going, giving and giving to your consumer and your potential consumers without the expectation of the sale. The things you do it enough times and things just, it's so weird, but things tend to come back around. <laughs> like you will get people, it'll resonate and people will end up. I think if it's so. authentic, right? Where I think that falls flat is like fake authenticity is worse. I'd rather just you telling me hey, man, I want you to buy my product than pretending. And the one that sticks out for me was the 5G commercial during the Super Bowl about, you know, we care about firefighters. And I was like, come on, man, you're just launching the 5G network. You're not an organization that's known for, you know, philanthropy. It just, it it was so hollow. I literally found it repulsive. That's the big brand. Uh, sometimes they get out there and they hop on things like a fad or they exactly they say like you know hey we're giving 10 percent of this 10 percent of our proceeds or we support this local community but really they're saying hey buy our stuff i remember budweiser put out a commercial it where in the commercial they donated like fifty thousand, but the commercial cost them 400 or 500 right. to produce right and it's just like okay you donated 100 grand budweiser like come on <laughs> and I, I think there's, you know, there's a healthy balance there. Look, I, I think it's better that companies do something than nothing, but there's two components to it. One is, is it core DNA of the company? And I think that it can be even through media creation, right? Like Red Bull, it is their marketing strategy to create content, right? They are as much a media company as they are a beverage company, but in so doing, it serves them. That is their go-to-market. But in so doing, they're creating value for their customers and non-customers alike. They create really entertaining, valuable content. Then the question is, that's not like saving the world, but it is contributing something. And then the question is like, why don't companies do more of it? Well, part of it is the psychology. Part of it is, like you said, the bureaucracy and sort of the legacy anchor of what marketing is, which is advertising. And then a lot of it, I think, has to do with unit economics, right? So how do I create something that's on brand 
enough, but cheap enough to do it every day and engaging. And that's very, very difficult. And that's why Gary Vanderchuk, who I actually, I think he has a lot of insights. He's a little bit, he's a character, but he talks about the content pyramid. There's a place for building the key art, whatever that is, you know, professionally produced video, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then chopping it up. But the, and that's an economical way to do it, but, and repurposing, right? It just doesn't get done enough. I'm guilty of it in my jobs. Like you, you have product building videos on one side and marketing building the same damn thing because we don't have a central repository, all sorts of stuff like that. But the other question is back to authenticity. It's hard for agencies to do it. It's hard for even just using a tool, a, a do-it-yourself tool. It's hard for marketers to do it. At Magisto, I had my team make videos that we were going to use as ads. And it was a way of like doing product development, you know, customer development. It just dawned on me like, hey, we're out there talking to small businesses. We are one. Let's see if we can use our own product. So for a week, I basically forgave them of all their other responsibilities and said, you know, in a week's time, come back with an ad for Magisto that we're going to spend money on and then document how much time it took you and where the challenges were. And the challenges were that, number one, that they couldn't come up with the idea because it wasn't just the creative department. I intentionally just had marketers do it. So they couldn't come up with a story because we don't think in video. We don't think in content. Definitely not video. Then two was if they did come up with the idea, then figuring out what imagery supported the story. So let's say you have the word softly or psychedelic or regenerative in your commercial. What visual goes with that? You have to be creative to to think about that. It could be an animation, right? It could be regenerative. I don't know. It could be a plant growing. Who knows? But it's tough, even if you have the story. And then lastly, there's the mechanical piece, right? Which it just takes time. So what I did is I took the number of hours they spent. Oh, so the two ahas were, hey, people don't conceptualize of this, A. B, even when they do, they have a really hard time finding the content, unlike your personal life, where it's like, you know, these are my kids. I don't have to think about what to show. So I took their salaries and the numbers of hours and like amortized their salaries against the hours. And on average, the videos cost me five grand a pop, which I could have gotten 500% better videos for that amount of money. And that was kind of when I was like, we have a problem and we fixed it. But it, it ties back to the things we've talked about. Collaboration, being honest with yourself and assessing like, is this working or not and it it wasn't because that was that was an easy story to go back to the product team back to the ceo and not throw anybody under the bus or make it controversial it's just like look we can't do it and here's why and we yeah, the offer ec- that the economics are the, the that's the real part of this too right like time economics combined with the conceptualizing, like having the strategy, right? And being able to do all that. It can do, can hamper a lot of efforts or, or make things that maybe were at first we thought would be easy. Oh, just make that video. But then a person has to spend two hours of, de- two hours below of design exploration time thinking about 
well, what imagery is best for regenerative? I can't never say that word, so I'm not even going to try it. Whatever I said, regeneration. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. I have a question for you, though. You know, my point of view is that because marketing has been so defined by advertising for so long, and that it's really marketing has evolved to be part of the customer journey, it's really go to market, and the nature of storytelling has changed. But because it's been so advertising focused, that there's my sense is there's a disproportionate amount of focus on branding in regards to graphic language, you know, the perfect logo or like haggling over the fact that it's not rendering with the right Pantone color on certain screens. So there's because it's been, first of all, we're visual creatures and it's been so much about television and print advertising and out of home that there's still a legacy that's that that says that's what a brand is when in fact it's like i can't you know you were asking about me walking into a fortune 500 company i want to i kind of want to say get over yourself and it's not just fortune 500 companies it's yoga studios it's bands it's like listen people just want to hear from you again the example i always use is what would you rather watch the best bmw commercial that Madison Avenue has ever cranked out that won every award or a shark eating a waffle on a flip phone. I mean, there's no question. I'm watching the shark. I think to your point, right? And from my experience, when we go in and we work with companies and we're coming from the agency side, we deal with that all the time. They say, here are our brand guidelines. And they send us some 45 page document that I don't think anybody's ever opened since they started the company. And I go, okay, that's cool. But here's what's, and that's great if we're going to run some like for the web design. And that's great for things, content that's really, you know, staple content, pillar content of the website. Sure. But social media is changing every week. So if we want to be part of that conversation, we got to adapt. And, you know, we were working with a, a Fortune 500 company that will remain nameless, but for us to get a tweet out the door took four levels of approval and a lawyer was the final sign off. And it was like, you know, I get the account. I'm so happy. And within like three weeks, I'm like, this is the worst job I've ever had. Like dealing with these levels of approval, but then also people at the top, not understanding that they don't control the narrative on social media and that they need to be part of the conversation not just constantly yelling. It's like brands trying to create their own hashtag. I'm always like falling out of my chair trying to explain to people that you don't like creating your own hashtag. It's it's not a real strategy (laughs) unless, unless you're actually going to do something that people would reshare and use. Right. And what I mean by that is your own company name as, you know, as the hashtag, unless you're an absolute massive powerhouse brand, realistically, that stuff's probably going to fall flat. If you're the hashtagging the local plumbing store or a, giant mortgage company or something like that. Nobody's going to go out there and hashtag the giant mortgage company unless they're complaining at you. That's what really interests me about that is how you, for example, with Smule, because we have all this user generated content, we spend a tremendous amount of money on advertising more or less, but it's like quote unquote paid organic because largely what we show is just performances of people singing together. And, you know, we purposely, we're data-driven, so we test it. But what we found is like, it typically it's like people who are good looking enough, but not so good looking that like, you can't imagine being that person who are good enough singers, but not so good looking or so such good singers that you feel like you can't be a part of it. And 
we, most of our advertising is just celebrating our users. And every time we try and make it an ad, like add copy and stuff to it, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. But, people, people see through that, right? They want to, we want to try to generate, my perspective is advertisements should try to generate normal feed activity. So what would a person normally see on their feed that they would right. like to engage with instead of a big copy thing that says, use Smule, sing with friends. It's like, no, let's show people singing together. The consumer is not a dummy. They're going to understand that this is happening, right? I think there's product. There's a class of products that, and to some degree it's happening, right? There are crowdsourced creative communities and other ways that ingenious ways that companies are doing it like Smule, but not all companies have access to that. So we have an indefinite supply of authentic content, but I'm really excited about the notion of A, tapping through product, the wisdom of the masses, let's say, to speak on behalf of companies who have won their passion, proven their passion and, and won their hearts and sort of built a tribe. I think we're going to see more of that. And then this notion of actually fostering creativity in the social sphere and collaboration and feeding it rather than extracting value from it solely, right? Because that's the way I see advertising in social is like, and look, I do it is like a sucker fish, just sucking the life out of an organism as, a, you know, and that's why I'm so passionate about paying into it before you extract value. And that, that to me is, that's the future of, uh, of, of marketing. I think you nailed it right there, man. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. I'm going to wrap this up, let you get back to your day, but, uh, for anyone who's listening who wants to connect with you, where is the best place that they can find you online? I guess it depends what you're looking for. My name is tough. So it's R-E-I-D, Reed, last name Genauer, G-E-N-A-U-E-R. And I've got a website. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. Those are probably my most active uh, profiles. Awesome. And guys, if you, uh, I'll put those links below in the show notes if you're looking at this uh, on the show notes page. Thanks a ton for coming on, Reed. I, I like this conversation a lot. Yeah, man, I look forward to uh, digging into some of the music. I'm going to definitely dig into some of the tunes that you uh, put out and then also, yeah, some of the marketing projects that you work on in the future. Thanks for including me in the, in the conversation, man. I really enjoyed chatting. Cool. Until next time, guys. Catch you later.